Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Gahi's uh, webinar today. I'm Bruce Lloyd, Gahi's Executive Director, and it is my pleasure to introduce Gahi uh, Vice President and President-Elect, John Keevan, who is Senior Vice President of uh, WebStar Cobb. John, you want to take it? Yeah, thanks, Bruce, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. I want to thank you all for being here. Really excited about this panel discussion today. It's going to be, uh, going to be very insightful. And we're talking about racial diversity and healthcare leadership. Um, hot topic right now and, and something I know everyone is focused on. And so we're excited, we're excited to hear from the panel. Um, I'd like to take a few minutes for some important chapter announcements before we get started. And then we'll move on to our program. Um, first, we, we absolutely have to thank and recognize our annual sponsors and, and just want to express our gratitude um, for making these types of events possible. Our platinum sponsor is Wellstar Health System. Our gold sponsors are Piedmont Healthcare, Metro Atlanta Ambulance, uh, Vocera, and Sound Physicians. And our silver partners are DT Spade and SSR. Uh, thank you uh, to, those uh, to those sponsors. We do have some upcoming virtual events we wanna make sure everybody's aware of. Our next virtual face-to-face -face program is gonna offer one and a half hours of ACHE face-to-face -face credit. So if you need to get your face-to-face -face hours, Great way to get some of those um, is uh, this next Thursday. So, or, or excuse me, it's Thursday, November 18th. So two weeks from now, um, from noon to 1.30. Uh, this will also be our annual meeting. So we encourage everybody to join. Um, and we'll have the 2022 board election. Um, and that slate was sent out to all of our members. So that we'll have a final vote on and award presentations for chapter awards. Uh, you can visit the events page at uh, www gahi.org uh, for details and to register for that event. I encourage you to do that early. Uh, Gahi offers several ways to stay connected. So please look for us on the web at the, our website. Um, we also, <clears throat> excuse me, are on Facebook. You can see uh, the Gahi Connect. You can search and find us there. We're also on LinkedIn. Uh, you can search and find us on Twitter as well at Gahi uh, Connect. And today's pro, uh, sorry, we, we also want to invite you to get involved by serving on one of our committees. Um, it's a great way to network, to um, help uh, Gahi move things forward. Um, and we really want to encourage if you have any interest, you can uh, ask about that today. You can email uh, bruce at admin at gahi.org and we will get you connected. Um, we have a lot of really interesting things. Our diversity and inclusion committee is putting on this program today. Um, so a lot of great opportunity. If you're interested, please make sure and email and let us know. We want you to be involved. Uh, today's program is going to offer one hour of ACHE qualified credit, um, which you can self-report to the ACHE website. Um, so you go log in, go to my ACHE, and you can self-report um, the credit today. Our topic today is racial diversity in healthcare leadership. Um, as you can see, we've got a really outstanding panel, and you can see that list in front of you. Uh, but it's my pleasure to introduce our moderator. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Williams, Jennifer, thank you for moderating for us today, is the Corporate Director of Diversity, Inclusion, and Engagement at Phoebe Putney Health System in, our, in Southwest Georgia. Dr. Williams has dedicated her professional career to developing high-achieving teams in both the nonprofit and government agency sectors. She's passionate about creating opportunities for individuals to use their strengths to contribute to organizational goals and she's a staunch advocate for the creation of diverse, equitable, and inclusion workplace cultures. 
She holds a PhD in policy and administration, a master's in public administration, and an undergrad degree in English. I would not want to go against her in reading, writing, and research, that is for sure. Um, Dr. Williams, thank you for uh, joining us today, for moderating the session. I know it's going to be a great one, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you, John, for that warm welcome. I am excited to be here with you all today, and I'd like to get started with a quick introduction of our three distinguished panelists. First is Joanne Hill. Ms. Hill joined Piedmont Healthcare in 2019 as the very first Executive Director of Diversity and Inclusion. She is a nationally recognized leader in the diversity and inclusion space, as well as an innovative agent in corporate America. In her employment with Piedmont Healthcare, Ms. Hill is responsible for ensuring that Piedmont's employment strategy and actions are reflective of its diverse marketplace. Driven by her desire to do more, Ms. Hill is also the CEO of the Game Changer Foundation, which is a nonprofit committed to ensuring women of all backgrounds have access to the resources they need to be impactful. Joanne, I'd love to turn it over to you and ask if you could share anything else about your background that you'd like the audience to know. The only thing that I think that is really critical to this conversation today is that I'm also a 1985 University of Georgia Bulldog grad, go Bulldogs, number one championship. Had to get that in. <laughs> Everything else, I believe that my work will speak for me and I'm so excited about being on the panel and thank you for that very kind introduction, Dr. Williams. Thanks, Joanne, we're glad you're here. Our next panelist is Dr. Antonio Rios. Dr. Rios is the current president and chief of population health at Northeast Georgia Health System, where he's dedicated to serving the healthcare needs of the Northeast Georgia community. He has been with Northeast Georgia Health for over 20 years, and Dr. Rios is the immediate past chief physician executive for Northeast Georgia Physicians Group, a position he held for 13 years. Dr. Rios, is there anything more that you would like to share about your background? Thank you very much, uh, Jennifer. Uh, pleasure to be here. I'm uh, originally from Mexico, Mexico City, came to the United States to do my residency, and I was in Atlanta, at, uh, privileged to have been at Emory University for four years and subsequently ended up in uh, Northeast Georgia. So quite a privilege to be here and thank you for the opportunity. We are happy to have you. Thank you for being here. Our final panelist is Ildemaro Gonzalez. Mr. Gonzalez is the Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer for Emory Healthcare in Atlanta. Prior to joining Emory in September of this year, Mr. Gonzalez served as Mr. Gonzalez served as the VP and Chief Inclusion and Diversity Officer at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He is a DNI leader with 20 years experience and a successful track record of designing and implementing innovative DEI strategies. He's also from Boston, Massachusetts, as am I, so go Red Sox. Mr. Gonzalez, are there any other aspects of your background to highlight for our, for our audience? So um, thank you again for having and, and inviting me to this panel. Um, 
just moved back to Atlanta, as you said, and uh, originally from Venezuela, a graduate of my MBAs from Georgia State. I first lived in the state and in Atlanta, uh, early 2000s. So you'll hear a little bit more of an experience there as we move on in the panel, but thank you, delighted to be here. Glad to have you. Okay, let's jump in. Um, first question is for uh, Joanne. Joanne, how has your personal journey affected how you approach DEI in your organization? Thank you, that's a great question. And when I think back and reflect on it, so many things that happened to me early on have molded me to being in this very space. I didn't even think about it. So my home is in Columbus, Georgia because my father was in the military station at Fort Benning. So growing up, we traveled a lot. I was born in Heidelberg, West Germany. My sisters and I early on were often the only people of color in our class or in our school. And it didn't even dawn on me. But one of the things that my mother told me is that don't let other people tell you who you are, what you can achieve. You can be anything you want to be. And so I've always sought to seek the common ground in people throughout going to primarily um, um, Caucasian um, high schools, onto the University of Georgia. I mentioned I was there. I was telling somebody lately that I was actually Miss Black University of Georgia years ago when they felt that there was a need to have two separate pageants. And all of that kind of shaped me. The year I won, an African-American woman won, Miss University of Georgia went on to compete in the Miss Georgia pageant top 10 con contestants and we saw there wasn't a need. So see, I saw, I grew up with the being separate and how that has molded me through my years of working at AFLAC where I retired after 29 years as their um, diversity, director of diversity and inclusion. I am very intentional in the work that I do each and every day. I'm the mother of two sons and I teach them the same thing. Don't let other people define you. I had a motto growing up that only he who created me can define me. And I think that it's time now to have this conversation and be courageous. It's not a bad word to say that we're not uh, equitable, which is different than equality. So even my work of going into healthcare and being at Piedmont is to make sure that we understand that there is a room, there is, there is room at the table for all of us where our voices can be heard. So I, I want to challenge everyone who's on the call today that not to be color blind, be color bold. Because you can see my color, but I'm asking you to lean in and find out where we're com we have commonalities across the board. Thank you. Oh, Joanne, I love it. So many nuggets there. Thank you, thank you. Antonio, same question to you. So hard to follow Joanne, you know. It's, uh... I had already some thoughts and now they've been derailed. But uh, I think that uh, many of the barriers come from within. You know, you come in with this insecurity. You know, I'm an Im immigrant. I speak with an accent. Am I able to do the job? You know, am I able to work and, and do like my peers? And I, I think that's internal. So eventually you get uh, busy in, in the work and, uh, and training and learning. And... Um, and you forget about these things, you know, things come naturally, you start getting uh, invited to be part of committees of uh, medical staff uh, affairs. And, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, there may be a reminder, which we'll talk a, a little bit down the line as to where you're coming from and what, how you talk, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that uh, at the end, I would summarize, summarize it to say that 
you know, as like Joanne very articulately put it, you know, it's not about our color, it's not about our accent, you know, it's about the work that we do and how we uh, conduct ourselves. And at the end of the day, that's what I uh, tell the members of my group and my colleagues, you know, it doesn't matter who, what color you, or skin you have or where you're coming from is how well are you doing the job? Thank you. Absolutely, thank you, thank you. And El Camaro, also same question. You know, growing up in Venezuela, I would say that my first uh, experience and really the one that shaped my journey in, in DEI happened as, as I landed in the U.S. in 2001, July 6, 2001. Because we'd gone through an immigration process that lasted about two years to come and do our master's, uh, my wife and I were pregnant when we landed and, on, and with a due date of December 31st. So... July 6th, due date December 31st, we all of a sudden, September 7th, wife is not feeling well, we go to a local hospital here in Atlanta, and doctor says, well, you, you just can't go home today, you're actually in active labor, it's too late for a surplus, you, you got to stay in until you deliver this baby, and we're like, oh my God, are we going to do this until December 31st, and then he says, well, it's very unlikely that the baby's going to uh, hold in uh, that long. So what happened was five months of uh, NICU stay for my wife and I and our, and our son. And there were a couple of experiences there that shaped what happened. First, this was the week of September 11th, the towers coming down. So we couldn't get any family in until next Sunday. By Sunday, when my mother came in, um, uh, we were getting ready to do a PDA ligation on the baby. And one, one curious nurse, approaches us and says, I noticed the necklace on your mother with a cru crucifix. Would you care to baptize the baby before the surgery? And of course, my mother, you know, I asked my mother and everyone, my mother says yes, and then my wife says yes, and then I go, yes, of course. And that's the pecking order of the Hispanic family, right? Mom, wife, and, and then lastly, you. So uh, right after that, we really felt now we're ready to have this uh, PDA ligation on a 1.7 ounce baby, 11 inches and so on and so forth. So that was the first uh, interaction there. Along the time, you know, nurses started using us as interpreters and they started using us as a support group leads or whatever you can call that uh, for other parents in the NICU. And we developed great relationships with everyone there. People would always tell us and the doctors and the nurses would say, Baby Tambasco, my wife's last name, is doing so great because of you, because of you, because of you. And, and we, believe it, we believed it. Two months into it, now being familiar with everyone else's story, we came to the realization it wasn't because of us. It was perhaps because of what we were born into. So we were bilingual. We were educated. We were insured. We had an opportunity and an ability to advocate for ourselves and we were educated. My wife was coming to do a master's in mathematics, I in international business. And I gotta tell you, the piles and piles and piles of forms that add up next to our incubator and the multiple names they have for those beds, you know, really were daunting. We, we had to take, you know, nights to study them and respond to them and those provided access to different services when we were being discharged, right? So our baby did well because we had an opportunity to understand these forms, fill the forms, 
secure the resources afterwards that meant therapies and so on for five years. And we still have friends from those times that their babies didn't do that well. So everywhere that I have been doing DEI with, both at the American Cancer Society, Parkland, Dana-Farber, and now here, I'm focused on patient outcomes. Yes, through a workforce that is thriving, that is diverse, that can speak up, and particularly in academic medical centers, you know, this issue of hierarchy is very important, but an organ, a, a, a workforce that is belongs in their institution so that they produce these enhancements in the patient outcomes or these equitable uh, patient outcomes. And that has been the work. And that's, we'll talk a little bit more about it throughout the panel. Thank you. Thank you for the sharing that. That's a wonderful story. Um, okay, so this discussion is about racism in healthcare. So let's dive right in. Um, I'm gonna pose this next question to all three panelists. We'll begin with Antonio, and then we'll go to Ildemaro and finish up with Joanne. So Antonio, can you share a racist experience you've had in the healthcare environment? And please give us insights into the event as well as the outcome. Sure, thank you, Jennifer. I was, uh, had recently arrived to Gainesville to start uh, working. I was employed by Northeast Georgia. And at that time I was doing the traditional internal medicine model where you see your patients in the office, but you also follow them in the hospital and you take part of the unassigned emergency room call. So this was uh, uh, one of those days when I was on call for the ER. And I thought that after being at Grady, I would never see that level of acuity, uh, six patients as I had seen in Grady, and I was so wrong. In any event, this particular patient, a, a Caucasian male in his 60s, uh, you know, I went to interview him, get the uh, history and physical exam, and of course, notice the accent and uh, where are you from? Uh, from Mexico? Uh, no, you, you cannot treat me. You, know, you, you are not from here, you cannot treat me. And I said, well, I am so sorry, you're stuck with me unless you wanna sign out against medical advice because there's no one else to treat you. I'm the only one on call. And this was over 20 years ago, so things have changed a little bit, but uh, uh, you know, that was it. So I continued to take care of him and uh, Eventually, uh, after his discharge, he continued to follow me in the office and became my patient until he passed away a few years ago. So, uh, but it was, it was sobering for a minute. You know, I was taken aback by that answer, but um, I just stood my ground and uh, didn't let that um, deter me. But I just recently, actually on Tuesday, interviewed a candidate. She is uh, doing her residency in Virginia. She's from Puerto Rico. And she had the same exact experience. The, the son of the patient uh, asked her where she was from. She said, I'm from Puerto Rico. I don't want you to take care of my, of my patient. We need to find somebody else. Being a resident, she went to her attending. Somebody else did end up uh, taking care of that. But it's a, it's a appalling that these things keep happening in today's day and age. Agreed. And I have a suspicion that they happen more often than we know. And that's unfortunate. Till tomorrow. Actually, it, it, 
It absolutely does happen more often. And I guess now people have found a new voice to both uh, report on them more and also to be more bold in their demands of who's taking care of them. So um, colleagues from multiple organizations are actually calling me on, on, on how they're dealing with this. So my experience, I'll share two experiences. One, as a patient, I, I woke up one day, could not move my arm and it was intense pain. I, I went to the hospital emergency room, x-rays, I fainted, it was, it was very painful. Eventually they discharged me and they said, go to this doctor. And this, this was by the way, here in Atlanta, early on 2003 maybe. So I get to the doctor and he sees the x-rays and, and by then I already had an MRI. And he says, this, is, this seems to be a residual injury or an injury that you've had for a long time and it's now calcified and that's what's creating the shooting pain. So he says, and what do you work? Uh, as do you know what, what what do you work and I say well I'm, I work at the American Cancer Society all right and then he says and and what do you do there I said well I'm I'm in the HR department or whatever I was at that point he says then he says to me are you sure you don't do landscaping and I said no I, I don't do landscaping and why would you say that uh, why would you ask and he says well, this seems like a sustained injury, you know, if you're digging trenches, if you're consistently planting. And he insisted, so are you sure you don't do none of that? And I, I said to this gentleman, I said, no, no, I, I don't do it. I actually don't have an appetite for it. I, I hired a white American to do my yard. I told him, and, um, you know, I just work on a computer all day and, and do programs. So the outcome, unfortunately, that, that situation never got solved. The, the outcome was I never went back to him. And eventually we found out that the sustained injury was because I'd been the drum mayor of my marching band for six years and we were very competitive. And that, that exercise in the arms actually got that tear in, in my muscles here. So that's one. The other very brief one is because in healthcare, patients and, and um, I'm sorry, um, clinical teams always think, well, people come to us, our patients come to us at our most vulnerable. So we got to, you know, put the other cheek, we got to sustain this, these abuses or microaggressions or whatever you want to call them, like the one Antonio was saying. I had in, in one of my organizations, I had a clinical assistant who shared that in, in a listening session, she shared, you know what, I, every day I come in, and I check the patients that are gonna be on the floor. And if a specific gentleman is gonna be on the floor, I spend the whole day hiding from this person because this person calls me Piccanini and all these different names. So the impact, while we think, well, yes, you are vulnerable, you are at your worst when you come to the hospital, it is not, and it should not be the expectation of healthcare systems that our employees, whoever they are, put up with this kind of behavior. So uh, two examples there. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, there, a patient being in pain is no excuse for how they treat healthcare providers. Absolutely not. Joanne, same question. Wow. You know, I I have so many examples, I wouldn't know where to start. And the reason is because I say this often, the work of DE&I is not for the faint of heart. You cannot be, as my peers are, 
and, and not feel that someone is not going to challenge you. And so I'll go to the very first day when I started at Piedmont in July of 2019, this big announcement went out and it was on LinkedIn and you know, people were very gracious and celebrating, but I had a couple of people internally and externally who were like, let me tell you who you are. You know, you're a token. You know, you're not welcome. You know, Piedmont is not serious about this and serious about you. I even had someone come into my office to say, bet six months, you'll be out. And so some people would say, were you offended by that? But go back to the first thing I said, that I already know who I am because my mother was very intentional of telling me who I am. And if you didn't create me, you cannot define me. You can't put me in a box. You can't tell me what I will do, what I won't do, what I can't. And so my thing is I'll wait, but I'll never forget the graciousness of our CEO, Kevin Brown. I told him about this at a, at a Piedmont leadership meeting. He was like, well, are you okay? You've been hearing all this negative. I said, okay. He was like, well, if you're okay, let them talk. We can show them better then we can tell them. And 28 months later, I'm still here. <laughs> and we're glad you are. And I said, <laughs> you up the church with that answer. So thank you for that. Okay, next question. Ildemaro, what are the best practices that you've seen leaders use to combat racism in their hospital or healthcare system? Let me, let me start with, with a couple of things. And particularly from a system level, which is alignment. Alignment between what you're set out to do in inclusion, diversity, and equity, and your organizational goals, your operational goals. To me, that is critical. And I've seen organizations succeed and not succeed because of that lack of alignment. And what I mean by that is, if as a health system, your focus is on, let's say, research, clinical care, and community, well, your work is around those three things. It's not only around hiring or not only around clinical care, it has to be around all these aspects or you leave people behind, right? You leave people that are saying, this is not um, relevant to my day to day. It used to be that we would say, if we have a CEO, typically the male CEO, by the way, but if we had the CEO, we, we got this, DEI is gonna happen. What research found was that because there was no connection to the day-to-day -day work of middle management, diversity got stuck in a lot of conversation at the leadership and nothing truly happening to impact their patients or anywhere else. So one is clear alignment. And because in the title we talked about uh, diversifying and representation leadership, absolutely. Um, you know, I know we all have discussed in one way or another around how search committees or panel interviews are deemed to mitigate bias more than individual interviews. So we all have some sort of panel interviews and we probably are mandating uh, diverse slates. I've, I've seen this role of a diversity or an inclusion disruptor in the panels, which is, you know, if the panel is diverse within itself, but no one is actually checking for biases or anything like that, then you don't have the same results. So even when the panels are not diverse, if you have an, an inclusion disruptor there, right, who can check on, wait a minute, this, this resume has similar experience, but the university is different or the employer is different, so we paid more attention. What do you guys think about that? Just so that you 
elevate the conversation. That to me is a great practice. At Emory, our um, senior leaders all have, and this is a new thing in the past uh, year or so, they have a DEI coach, one-on-one -on -one personal coach, because at the end of the day, it, it comes down to when you are in your office and you're making those decisions as an individual, you know, what are you choosing? Are you, um, you know, deciding and acting on your biases or are you truly being inclusive as a leader? So that's, that's two. And then lastly, I would say, once you've weaved it across everything you do, really, frankly, like you do with any other uh, critical part of your strategy, you got to tie this to the compensation of, of everyone and at the beginning, at least of leaders, whether it's in the full comp and the variable comp, but you need to see in your annual operating plans, EI KPIs across all your areas and eventually connected to uh, executive compensation. Those I think are, and notice I didn't focus only on education on anti-racism education. I'm going to wait to the end to thank you all for being here, but I am so filled right now. You're just, you're giving so much. I'm, I'm really excited about these, these responses. Um, who's next? Joanne or, or um, Antonio, either one of you have anything to add to that? The only thing that I will add, and I agree with you totally, um, um, is that, you know, Metrics are so important in everything we do. I mean, we are all in, um, we all have businesses, whether you're a profit or nonprofit, we all have a responsibility for a bottom line. I believe you move what you measure. If you ever tried to lose weight, you got to get on the scale so you know where you're starting. And one of the things that I think is important, particularly in this discussion around racial equality and leadership, is that we have to have the courageous conversations. First, we have to move and know where is our starting point. It's not a negative to say, we need to increase the racial representation, the ethnic representation and have more diverse leadership. That's not a bad word, but I like to start off by saying this is that diversity, equity and inclusion is about all of us. It doesn't mean that you're not welcome at the table, Bruce. It doesn't mean that, that Bobby, you're not welcome. We all have to be at the table or you, Roger, and we have to be able to level set. I say often, I say, I'm not trying to take your seat, Roger. I'm trying to sit next to you so that I understand what it took for you to be there so that 20 years from now, I'm not having the same discussion with my children and my grandchildren about making it fair and equitable. People, it's time out to keep having these same conversations. We have to do something. Inclusion is a verb. And if we're not comfortable by saying, why haven't we considered Joanne? Why haven't we considered Dr. William? Then we are wasting our time. And so I'm very clear on that is that we have to have metrics. We have to hold each other accountable. I love the part to the um, executive compensation. We're not there yet, um, but we're moving there. But again, I think the key is that we have to have mentorships, sponsorships, advocates, and it's everyone. It's not just people who are um, of the brown, brown and black communities. It's everyone together. And I would only add that uh, our organizations or any organization not only needs to talk the talk, they need to walk it yes. as well. And there has to be zero tolerance, all the policies and procedures in place to have zero tolerance 
for any of the events that uh, have been shared uh, so far. And I don't want to get upset, but I want to share this brief story, if I may. Uh, you talk about Walk the Talk. So I mentioned that I retired from AFLAC. You know anything about AFLAC and Dan Amos? He is diversity, equity, and inclusion in motion. And when I retired, I went to see him. I mean, I knew him very well, worked with him. Diversity and inclusion was because he said it was going to be because, yes, it helps the bottom line, but it's the right thing to do. And he's quoted, and I've quoted him by saying, I know what um, a Caucasian man in his 60s looked like. When he looked at his staff, he said, we all look the same. And so then he set out to make the change. But one of the things that he also said is that it takes a person in the majority to open the door for a person in the minority. He says, that's when people know it's real. He says, because why would I stand up and say diversity and inclusion and equity is important? He says, so that's what, why we have to have those sponsorships and allyships and mentorships to open the door for the next person. Doesn't take anything away from you to let me come in and have a seat at the table and my voice to be heard. But you have to have courage to do this. Thank you. Can I, at the risk of delaying our, I'm, I'm sorry, but you, such great points. So two things I, I just want to add here. One, I love your point of this is not about me taking your place. We got to be together. And I've always uh, brought this down to this example. There, there are many of, uh, of our colleagues that to demonstrate a point, they always say, look around, there's no one like us around this table or there's no minorities in this audience. I, I kind of shy away from that exercise because that tells the individual that's there that maybe you shouldn't be there. I speak to it more in the lines of who's not around this table, right? And what are the perspectives we are missing to actually deliver care or win in the markets we're trying to win? That's one. And to your other point, Joanne, around, um, you know, it takes a person in the majority. This this has been such a shift in all, in all things DEI. It used to be that to help women advance or to drive represent, gender representation at the top, we would work on the woman or on the minority. We would try to fix it. And you saw a lot of, you know, dress for success where you were trying to get women to dress like man, basically, to, so that, you know, you remember your belt and all of that, all right? Well, about, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 years ago, I remember a conversation with, with uh, a, someone who was doing research on that and he says, no, 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 no. This conversation actually has to happen with the man, not the woman. It is not the woman that we need to fix. It's the mindset of the man that we need to amplify. So from that point of view, I have evolved in my thinking around uh, in instructions and, and courses and education and really ask myself, who do we need to be talking to if we're trying to uh, you know, increase career mobility of minority or underrepresented minorities in our organization? Is it just the minorities or is it the individuals who've actually become the network for others to get access to these opportunities? So that that's what's my point there. Thank you. Good stuff, good stuff. Uh, you, all three of you have touched on some of these uh, issues in this next question now, but if you had to identify three challenges that healthcare leaders um, should have on their radar if they're trying to improve culture, a cultural diversity in their organizations, what would those three challenges be? 
Oh, I'm sorry. Um, let's start with Antonio. Uh, so I think that um, one of the first challenges is to look yourself at the mirror, really to do an, an, a self-reflection on where you are. You know, how, if, if I look at my organization, if I walk the hallways of the clinics or the hospital, I see diversity. If I walk in the C-suite, you know, that's a different story. And um, I think that there's a great female representation, uh, but as far as minorities, you know, minimal. So I think that, uh, again, it's not to have those minorities present, just to have minorities and check the box. Right? It has to be competency and fit uh, for the organization. But the willingness to accept that there is an opportunity to improve, I think that's a, a good start. Joanne? Wow, I won't go into three. I won't go into three challenges, but we're gonna we're gonna end right here with me. I could go on and on. I will just go back to say I think that there are um, three P's that that we could look at. What is your purpose? What is your patient? What is your passion? And how does that align to your align to your paycheck? And when we look at that, if you're in healthcare, hopefully we're in healthcare because we have a passion concerning people. Our purpose is that patient safety. I say often, although the patient is in the center, you have to have healthy, well employees to take care of patients. And so when we look at things, we should look at things of how would we want to be treated. Let's just kind of step back to the basics. You know, when I when I see everything that's going on with all of the health disparities, we have COVID, we have vaccines, we have all that. If we could just step back to how do I want to be treated when I am a patient, when my mother was a patient. When we do that, then we should look beyond whether I'm a female or a male, whether I'm black or white, whether I'm gay or straight, whether I'm a Muslim or a Christian. I think so often we spend so much time looking at so many other things that we forget that. You know, when I'm in the hospitals, the first person I usually see when I go to the hospital is the person who's a greeter. I seek the person who's an EVS. And then if I happen to make my way up to the CEO, that's fine. Because if you don't have a customer facing greeter, and if you don't have a person in environmental services that is so passionate about the job that they'll clean a room or pick up a piece of paper without you asking to help us meet that metric of the days of life, then we then, then we're our, our thought is not right. We seem to want to flaunt to the CEOs. Again, my mother, Viola Sims, I'm gonna write a book with her ism said. Don't you dare walk by the person who's mopping the floor to talk to the CEO. Everyone deserves the same amount of respect. So if we can just get back to respect in our organization, we can start there on our way to going to other places. Thank you. Can you repeat real quick the three Ps for us? Your purpose, your passion, and your paycheck. You know. Love it. Thank you. You're welcome. So I would I, I would add you know full agreement with what Antonio and Joanne has shared, and I would had I would add intentionality. So um, many times we are used to going intentionally after specific you know if we're looking for a department chair if we're looking we will go and find that individual in the last corner of the world, but we can't find the minority provider that is 
you know, serving uh, our community next door. So intentionality. The other term, and it might not be a popular term, but I saw it that way in a presentation and I loved it. It's data porn, meaning we tend to get into all these factoids and there's so much data right now. And, and we all keep tons, tons of our data separate from the true balance scorecard that has a key set of metrics that we, that we follow as leaders in the organization. So a challenge is how do you weave DEI metrics into the true balance scorecard and not into the IDE or DEI dashboard? You need to have a single dashboard and that's, that I think is a challenge. And here's a, a, what I think is a current challenge because of the social unrest last year and the sudden awakening of, of so many of our colleagues, which is this. We have a group of individuals whom last year had the privilege to have the conversation around George Floyd and everything that was happening in a safe home with a secure space and they were able to turn it off, you know, whenever they wanted to, like uh, in, as an analogy. We, other, we had other individuals who had to have the conversation, couldn't turn it off. It was about safety. It wasn't just about passion and, and allyship. It was about safety, it was about behavior, it was about... So these two groups, right? They come and they meet in our facilities or in our workspace. And one is now feeling maybe some sort of guilt or some sort of pressure into, oh my God, could I have been a part of this or could I have done or been contributing to this, whether willingly or unwillingly, knowingly or not knowing it. And for that group, everything that you do around education, they want to read all the books. They want to, they want, because they're trying for you to teach them on how to have a race conversation on how to reach out to my colleague that looks different than me. So they, when they're getting the education, they're feeling fulfilled. They're feeling we are doing DEI. Then the other group, remember the group that was having this conversation around safety and, you know, when you, the police and all of that, that group is saying, but wait a minute, we've been having the education and the DEI trainings forever and nothing has happened. So let's not overload the education. Let's actually get acting and let's do something around it. So the challenge right now is it's not just going one way or the other, it's balancing education for those that need it to get their level of comfort in a way that they can have the conversation and two, truly embedding this into what you're doing and demonstrating uh, meaningful action. That I think is the challenge of these days. Absolutely. I want to add one more challenge and that is creating an inclusive workplace because there is no shortage of diverse candidates for any position that we need to fill, right? But creating an environment where those candidates want to come and where they feel that they belong and they can contribute at their highest potential, that's, that's a challenge for many organizations. Um, in the essence of time, I'm gonna ask one last question before we turn it over to audience questions. And if we could um, keep our answers as brief as possible, the last question will be, um, and we'll start with Joanne. What are the best resources that healthcare leaders are using to address racism and other exclusive type cultures in our healthcare environments? 
Um, I think we have the resources out there. I think it's connecting them. I think um, there's obviously training around unconscious bias, implicit bias, microaggressions. Um, there's many organizations from the National Diversity Council to this great group and just having a network of people. I mean, I'm going to connect to as many of you, several of you have already sent me LinkedIn. I like to have, you know, virtual coffee or meet for coffee to talk about what's working. There's another organization called the Leadership Institute, which is um, a collaboration of several healthcare organizations that do not compete against each other with people coming together. Why should we reinvent the wheel if you already have something that works so that we can move this country and our community together? But I think it's being open to reach out to say, I don't have all the answers. I know I don't. And so if you have some, let's talk and see what we can do for, for the people. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Bruce, is it, is it time for audience? Uh, yep, yep. We have a few questions in chat. And if, you know, we have about uh, 10 to 15 minutes. So if uh, people want to ask another question, just put it in chat or you can unmute yourself and ask your question directly. Uh, let's see, I'm just going to go from the, from the top down. Uh, let's see, we have a comment. Uh, as a female gay leader who pre presents very feminine, I have not experienced any prejudice, but I have definitely hidden, uh, this is my family, but maybe hidden that at times to prevent discrimination when executive decisions are in play and just to comment very sad. I want to comment on that briefly if I can. Sure. Most of you know in around the Atlanta area that the Atlanta Pride event was canceled this year. Piedmont was going to be a silver sponsor. And um, I was really excited about that event. It wasn't until I joined Piedmont in 2019 and participated in Atlanta Pride that I really found and saw all the commonalities with people who are LBGTQ plus and some other people in underrepresented communities. And so the question that I would have for this group and that I have for many people is, who are we to judge what people can do? When we come into our work environments, just as with our patients, it should be a safe place for us to be who we are. But I will tell you in 2019, my first year, I walked at Atlanta Pride and I received some negative email, text, hate mail saying, I can't believe you. she's gone to Atlanta from Columbus and lost her mind. And now she's socializing with LBGTQ plus people. So we had these nice t-shirts, these nice Atlanta Pride masks. And I'm gonna tell you, I'm an advocate for the person who is struggling to have a seat at the table and have their voice to be heard. So for you, I will wanna say that there are other people who are part of the LBGTQ plus community and leadership positions in all of our organizations. And many of them are afraid to say who they are. So I encourage people to let yourself be known and you will find out that other people like you will stand up and be supportive because at the end of the day, it's about advancing the health of our patients and the health of our employees and our providers. Great feedback. And by the way, many of our, um, our patients are members of the LGBTQ Community. And mm -hmm. Yes. So, and, and that was, that was what I was going to add both to this, this conversation and the previous one on resources. I believe our best resources are our patients and our staffs themselves. There's nothing more powerful than a patient panel where patients are talking about their experiences 
at your practice, whether it's a 15-person practice or a 1,000-bed hospital. When you hear the patients, when you hear their experience, one, you're engaging them in the problem-solving, two, you're generating trust that will translate into you know, at a minimum, <laughs> adherence to treatment plans in the, in the consult, that's one. And two, when you're engaging your staff in sharing who they are, they too feel empowered then to be part of the solution. In, in every organization I've been at, we've had to start doing sexual orientation and gender identity data collection. There is always an initial resistance because people are afraid of that conversation. But as we got leaders, in these panels to hear the stories directly, whether it was a one-on-one -on -one or a two-on-one, hearts and minds started changing. It's not easy to say it uh, and, and not go through it, uh, but I do believe that that is a, a way to being out, not as an LGBT, it's, there are so many uh, aspects of our lives that we cover in our workplace, whether we caregiving responsibilities and so on. So my point's there, thank you. Okay, here's another comment and a question. Um, takes a person in the majority to sponsor a person in the minority. I love that Dan Amos quote. Thank you for sharing that, Joanne Hill. Uh, my question for the entire panel, uh, how did you go about making your foray into healthcare leadership and how did you go about securing your sponsor or mentor? Um, I can start and you know, I never aspired to be a, a, a leader. You know, I just wanted to take care of my patients and do a good job. And it's that just the work and eventually seeing the opportunities that were for improvement in X and just uh, jumping to try to uh, be part of the solution versus part of the problem. Uh, little by little, you start getting into committees, et cetera, et cetera, and more training. And then you're asked to be a, a medical director for X and it just exploded from there. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I think that it's uh, number one, ensuring that you earn your seat at the table. And number two, that we as leaders and not only minority leaders, but all leaders identify those folks and give them the opportunity to sit at the table. I'll just say this very briefly. Um, I did not intend to go into healthcare. I, mean, I was in corporate America, I had decided to retire because honestly, I felt like enough is enough. I said, I want to do something in my life that is impactful, that when my time is up on this earth, I don't want them to say she worked at Aflac, she was bubbly, she's a great singer or a UGA grad. I want them to say that she came in, when she walked in the door, she changed the game for me. She coached me, she mentored me, she helped me. And I felt like I couldn't do that. Hence is why I started my own foundation, was about to do that. Then this great opportunity from Piedmont came in. And I felt that the promise of Piedmont to make a positive difference in every life aligned with, with my goals. And so that's why I went into this field. But that's why I'm also very passionate to say, who am I to not help you? Who am I to not move the needle, to open a door? I sit in a seat of privilege. 
We often use that and people say white privilege and we shudder. Why? Because there are not a lot of people like me that sit in the seat or like Kim Bell, who's on this call, who's an executive director at Columbus. There's not a lot of us. So with my privilege, my seat cannot just be for me. It has to be to help someone else. So yes, when I enter the room, I'm already educated. I'm already experienced. I already have executive presence and I don't make an excuse for the very existence why I'm here. So let's get beyond that. I don't have to answer. I don't have to tell you why I'm here. I'm here, but I'm also here so that other people again can get here and it does not take 25 years. And I'm passionate about it. Forgive me for my passion, but yeah. no. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, so um, I would say two things, just uh, only an ad. One is when I come in the room, I, I once heard uh, he was the global health, global leader in marketing. He would tell me, I want to show up like help, not like an expert. Meaning I come in, I know what I know, but I'm partnering with you to solve your problems. So I took that to mean when I go in and talk to leaders or the EVS staff, and I was recently, uh, you know, cleaning our rooms in, emer in the emergency room with, with staff just to check, you know, do people see our EVS staff or are they invisible to others? So um, when I go into a conversation with anyone, I'm going in a conversation to solve your problems, whether it is a cohort for a clinical trial, or it is growth in your career, or it is in finance, I need more analysts or whatever it is. I come in to solve your goals and your problems through the lens of DEI. That is where I, I do want. And two, I take the position of an advocate and not an activist. There is a time and a place to be an activist. I take a position in an, of an advocate. I, um, I, I try to build bridges and I, yes, bring data, but I have found that the combination of both, show up like help and not like an expert and be an advocate, not an activist, have built the trust for people to continue to invite me to different opportunities. And that's how my career has advanced. And of course, based on my father would always tell when it's your turn to sweep the floors, do it better than anyone else because someone's always watching. So do what you do, do it with pride. Those three are, are my three things. There was one question that came earlier, and this would be to um, Ilda Morrow. I'm looking for the question. The coaches you mentioned at Emory, are they these ex internal or external resources? Yes, I, I, I responded via chat. They're external coaches. They are external coaches. And there is a case to have either, but we use them external. Do you mind sharing who, the, who they are? sharing what organization you use? Not at all. Right now we're using them through BCT okay. uh, Partners. Okay. This is the firm that is doing it for us. I have another question for you. Uh, Ildemaro and Joanne touched on diverse slates and both, both mentioned a couple of intentional tactics, metrics, and mentorship. Could you expound on your intentional efforts to assure that Diverse candidates receive transparent feedback, mentorship, sponsorship, et cetera. 
You can go first. <laughs> right. So in terms of slates, by the way, first, in, in and I'm talking in the experience of multiple of my organizations, not only from the MRE point of view, we had mandated uh, um, diversity in candidate slates. That's that's the, the policy there. However, in actually diversifying the slates, we realized in all across the multiple organizations I've worked, that it was really the networks of our individuals that we needed to diversify because faculty attract faculty and so on and so forth. So one of the things we did, for example, is we would do nursing ground rounds on healthcare disparities on the nursing world or something, whatever the title was. So we would invite whoever was in, else in the city or, or you know, a public gathering of these experts to come and uh, join us at these ground rounds. What we got, both in the roster of registrants, we got names and warm leads. And we also found that depending on which topic you're looking at, then you are able to attract more minority or less minority. So we always, you know, overcompensated for the ones that would attract more minorities. We call them bring-ins because it gave individuals an opportunity to come to your organization, see themselves in it before they were looking for a job. So it created a pipeline. That's from an external uh, tactic there. In terms of sponsorships, we have a sponsorship programs specific, specifically for uh, women and minority. That's, uh, that's another, so, and if you're thinking about what is the difference between mentoring and sponsor, I'll give you two words. Think of a mentor as the teacher, think of a sponsor as the promoter, the one that is going to leverage their uh, institutional capital to say, I know Jane and Jane deserves an opportunity here. Why don't we think of her for this, uh, for this project or so on and so forth. So two, two things there, Joanne, and then we can go on, but Joanne. And I will just say this very, uh, very, very briefly, even on our, our diverse slate and our diverse slate is just that one person has to be diverse. And it could be someone who is LBGTQ, a veteran, someone who has special abilities. But of course, the needle we are trying to move is to increase the number of minorities, representation, women and ethnic minorities in leadership. So that's at our director and above, our requirement or mandate is one person. But of course, that took some time to get people at Piedmont comfortable. You talk about whether you're going to come in as a help. And this is something that I'm going to say, and it's another ism that you can take. I think that sometimes you have to be self-aware of who you are. And I know that I have a very commanding presence. I can be very um, uh, laid back as well. But I am on a mission at Piedmont. Because as I told them, you don't get 29 years like Aflac did to have me working because I'm 58 years old. So therefore, time is of the essence because we're all in a talent war. So I do like to be clear to say it is time to make movement that is needed. And so part of this work with the slates and coming to the table is to be very clear. And when you're an African-American female in leadership, it is so easy to be pegged as the angry Black woman. So I'm not angry but I'm mad. I'm motivated, affirmed, and determined to make it better than I found it. Please call me mad. I'm motivated, affirmed, and determined. And because of that, I do push perhaps harder than sometimes people would say, because time is not something we have. These are people's lives. We need to impact them. I'm mad. You can write that down. I wrote that down. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Williams, we are just about out of time. Do you have any closing comments? Unfortunately, there's still some questions in chat that we didn't get to, but 
but we need to wrap up at one. Um, do you have any closing comments for us? This has been a wonderful experience. I want to thank each of the panelists. You have brought so much knowledge and feeling and experience to this conversation. Really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you to our audience members. Great questions. I hate that we couldn't get to all of them and hopefully we'll be able to uh, get answers and send them out. I'm not sure if that's a thing we do, but maybe we can. Um, I can I can do that. I'll copy the chat and send it to you guys. Excellent. excellent. Uh, also, I want to remind everyone that we have a, another diversity event coming up on December 8th, and it's just in time for the holiday season, and the event will center around cultural, religious humility in the healthcare setting, um, and I hope that all of you will join us for that. And I, we don't have time for that very last question. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Bruce, and maybe you can tell people how to uh, get credit. And Sure. Yeah, I'll go ahead and, and wrap us up. And I just want to say thanks again, uh, Dr. Williams, and, and to our panelists for just an outstanding program. Uh, everybody in the comments uh, got some great comments and a great session. I uh, also want to thank uh, uh, Jarvis Gray, Eddie Lai, Roger Sue, and the whole Diversity and Inclusion Committee for helping to organize today's event. Great program. And, uh, and thanks to our annual sponsors. We appreciate all you do for the Georgia healthcare industry. Um, as a reminder, uh, be sure to complete the meeting evaluation that will go out later this afternoon along with a, a recording of today's session and uh, some other things. And, uh, and then be sure to self-report one hour of qualified education credit on the ACHE website in the My ACHE section. I saw a comment that I wasn't able to get back to and chat about, uh, does ACHE do that? They do that for the face-to-face -face programs, but the qualified programs, you self-report those. Uh, so that's it. I uh, hope everyone has a great afternoon and uh, hope to see you at an upcoming event. Thanks again to our panel. You guys have a great Thanks day. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye. -bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.